If you would take your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." So all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated, God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, and took to him his wife, and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son." And he called his name Jesus. One of the challenges of the Christmas season, along with what we mentioned last Sunday morning, and that is how at times the Christmas season for many can be a difficult time of year. There are at times experiences, past trauma and trials that can make the season difficult. At other times, there are those who struggle with the loss of loved ones and similar kinds of circumstances, so that the Christmas season can be a challenge for many. But I think along with that, and those more intense kinds of experiences in Christmas, I think there are times the season can also be disappointing. Now, I know what you may be thinking, well, what do you mean by that? I'm not necessarily talking about the sadness or uh, the grief that can be associated with it for some. I just mean the way there are times we really hype up this season and it doesn't match our expectations. Has that ever happened to anyone? Have you ever gone into the season expecting something more? Uh, Or maybe not even that. We recognize this time of year comes with a lot of expectations, unique stress. So if otherwise some difficult situation were to come up some other time of year, you may not think as much about it. But if it happens now, what do we always say? I can't believe that happened at Christmas. This time of year can come with some disappointments. Have you ever had one of those family get-togethers? that you hoped would be full of joy and, you know, good times and connection and somehow old stuff was brought up afresh and new again? Everybody ever been in one of those kinds of Christmas experiences? Have you ever thrown some kind of Christmas event hoping this would be a great time? Maybe it's a a kid's event, maybe it was a family-related event, only to have the thing fall flat. Or maybe you have a Christmas season where it it rains every single weekend in December. 
but not cold enough to snow. Have you ever had that happen? Yes. Every weekend, right? Every weekend in December thus far. Have you ever hoped and longed for that day when you'd pull from out from under that tree the G.I. Joe headquarters fully loaded with all the stuff only to find another sweater? That may be personal. All right, it may not be. All right, but it may be. Maybe some personal trauma in my own life. No, Christmas can have its disappointments, right? Again, we put a lot of expectations on the season. We think a lot should happen, and sometimes those warm, happy, joyful feelings don't happen. Well, there's good news, though. I mean, part of the benefit of taking time during the Christmas season, and it's something I've now done 20 years to turn our attention to the Christmas story, to turn our attention to all that surrounds this birth of Christ, to use the theological term, the the incarnation, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God made flesh, fully God, fully man, the benefit of taking time year in and year out to think deeply and theologically and biblically about this season is because it, to me, is the only antidote. It's the only means by which we can really enjoy a season of hope and peace and joy and love. Because let's all be honest, if hope and joy and peace and love, if these things come to us only in our relationships with others, it's going to be a tricky season, isn't it? However, if we recognize that what God's Word says to us, what God's Word promises to us is that in fact, God by a gift of His grace through His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, has given us real hope and real joy and real love. And in fact, this season can be something much more than just a disappointing Christmas or one that doesn't rise up to expectations. Instead, it gives us what it is supposed to. And so that's why we've been looking at Matthew chapters 1 and 2. Interestingly enough, I think those first participants in the Christmas story maybe would have been disappointed by the first Christmas. I mean, these early folks who are, as we talked about last week, I mean, here here they are in a time of darkness. They've not heard a word from the Lord, and what they want more than anything else is to come out from under the burden of the Roman Empire, to throw off that oppression, to once again rise to a position of power and prominence on the world stage. But that is not what happens. Instead, we end up with a no-name couple and a story that takes place in a know-nothing little town and a baby that's born in what amounts to be a barnyard. You could say maybe these first folks thought this was a bit disappointing. Matthew, in his first two chapters though, I think presents us with the appropriate perspective that we have during the Christmas season. I noted this last week. What Matthew does for us is he draws our attention in particular to Christ as King. That that, that Jesus fulfills all of the Old Testament expectations of the promise of a King. We, we, We noted it last week in the name given, the title given to Jesus, Jesus Christ, the Anointed One. In fact, Matthew goes to great efforts in these first two chapters 
Five times he draws our attention back to the Old Testament. After each story draws our attention to some prophetic word from God to say, and this happened so that this might be fulfilled. And I think each of these stories are designed to intentionally build up the image here of Jesus as king. And so as we look at Matthew's presentation of the Christmas story, I think we we do get a glimpse of how important it is that you and I as believers in Christ recognize Christ as king in order to get the most out of the season. And so we're trying to answer then the question, so what is it that's so important about the kingship of Jesus? What do we know? What do we need to know? What is it that Matthew tells us about Christ as king? Well, number one, we saw this last week, in Christ we have a king who reigns, a king who reigns. And so that was our focus then. We looked at the genealogy for a little bit, the reference, three different occasions, Jesus Christ or Jesus the Christ. There's a very intentional expectation here to present Jesus as the anointed one. Fulfillment of the Old Testament promise about the Messiah, one given this position of power and authority. And here's what I think is critical about this particular title. This means since Jesus reigns, Jesus owns me. He owns me. My life is to be lived in, and we used a bad word, right? Submission. Our life is to be lived in submission to the reign of Jesus Christ. So we would do well to ask ourselves, is it? Because I'll tell you, I think if you want the most out of this season, it's best lived in submission to the Lordship of Jesus. If you want to know real hope and real peace, if you want to know real freedom, then make sure that your fundamental concern is one related to Christ. All your other relationships will fall out appropriately. If first and foremost, I come under the Lordship of Christ. All right, number two, and this is the one we'll look at this morning. Christmas promises us a king who saves. A king who saves. So now now notice how Matthew gets us to the first story of his presentation of the Christmas story. Though most of of the time, Matthew's going to give stories related to the wise men, their visit to Herod what Herod then does in response, how Jesus and the family have to flee, then how they move to Nazareth, and we'll, we'll walk our way through these. You know, by the time we get to the end of the month, we'll hit all the highlights of these stories. But the first thing that he does is he follows naturally with, the, with all that he had said about the genealogy. This is about Jesus Christ, and the last names that he gave was that Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary. This is verse 16 of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Then verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Jesus, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Now already we notice there's something interesting about this story. I mentioned this last Sunday night when I talked about the genealogy in a bit more detail. If you ever notice, anytime Joseph is talked about, it's always in relation to Mary. In fact, it's really odd. That verse we read in verse 16. note, Note how it says, Joseph is the husband of Mary. 
And even here, before we even get to anything about Joseph, we first hear about who? The mother. And his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph. In other words, Mary gets top billing here, right? So just another little interesting tidbit for you in the birth of Jesus. You will in vain find any reference ever to Joseph as the father of Jesus. It's never said. It's never described in those terms. Now, it's important though, he does stand legally as the adopted, in essence, earthly father. But he is not the biological father of Jesus. And the text goes out of its way to say that. Verse 16 did not say, Joseph begat Jesus. Read the rest of the genealogy, if that's your thing. If you love genealogies, alright, that's a good one to read. There's everybody begatting everybody, alright? There's a lot of begatting going on until you get to Joseph, and Joseph doesn't begat anybody. The pattern breaks. It simply says, Joseph, who was the husband of Mary... To whom was born Jesus. It's very intentional. And now we have the same kind of thing. His mother, his mother, capital H there, all right? The mother of Jesus was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then notice how it describes him. Then Joseph, her husband. Again, it's all in, it's all in relation to Mary. Being a just man, not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. So what is Matthew getting at right here at the very beginning? Well, he's describing an idea that's critical to the Christmas season. Theologically, it is absolutely essential, and that is what we call the virgin conception. That, That Jesus is born by virtue of the work of the Holy Spirit in Mary. That's, that's where then Jesus comes from. So, Joseph is not the biological father. So, he's never called father. He's only ever called the husband of Mary. Now, we don't know all the story here. But obviously, Joseph finds out that Mary is with child. Now, they're betrothed. It's like an engagement, except a little more serious. It was a legally binding relationship. So, to to break a betrothal was something likened unto a divorce. It was a legally binding relationship. And so, Joseph gets word. We don't know how it happens. The text never tells us in what manner in which Joseph finds out, uh uh-oh, this could be a problem. So, the text says, he's a just man. So he's trying to figure out, how can he put her away? So that's kind of the legal language there related to divorce. How, how can I break off? How can I dissolve this engagement without making a public spectacle of her? How can we do this thing quietly? Again, what is the text going to great efforts to show? Joseph is not the father. You don't have to do a whole lot of you know, in-depth Greek stuff, all right? You don't have to get into a whole lot of difficult and complicated theology. I think it seems pretty clear. Matthew is stating to us that the, Joseph is not the biological father of Jesus. Now, I want to stop here for just a second because I do want to make a comment about this. You know, this is one of those places where 
skeptics of the Bible, critics of the Bible. They love to point to this one, right? And they love to say, how, how, how can modern man believe this? Well, first it's important to note, ancient man didn't believe it any more than modern man did. Why else would Joseph put her away secretly, right? You don't think Mary told Joseph? An angel had already told me. This is all good, Joseph. We're good here. I had a visit from an angel. And what's, what must have been Joseph's response? Huh. Yeah. Something's in the water in your well, girl. All right, because I'm not buying that. That's not actually in the text. All right, so, okay. All right. So they, they didn't believe in the whole idea either. They understood how this thing worked. So skeptics love to point out and say, There's, how could that possibly be true? And then here's the other thing they love to point out about the text. Which, by the way, let me answer that. If in the beginning God can create everything out of nothing, a virgin conception is not that big a deal. It's not that big of a deal. All right? In other words, if, if I can accept that, if I can accept a lot of the other things, it's not that big of a deal. Can the God who created all things do that which has no natural explanation, yet it still be legitimate? Yes. All right, so there's your answer. I don't have to explain it any more than that, especially to an unbeliever. Their their minds are darkened, they're blind to the truth, and they're not going to believe it anyway. They're just going to want to get in an argument with you. But if they do get in an argument with you, this may be something they bring up. Ancient, Ancient myths and religions had all kinds of references to virgin births. That's what they'll say. You hear this on the so called History Channel. That's how you should refer to it, by the way, all right? Any channel that spends most of its time talking about UFOs and ghost sightings is no longer a history channel. All right, nonetheless, this is, this, when they do religious things, it happens at Christmas, it happens at Easter, they bring on a lot of these skeptics. There's all kinds of ancient myths out there. You know what I find remarkable about Matthew 1 and Luke chapter 2, by the way? You know what I find remarkable? These texts are utterly unremarkable. They are unremarkable. If you were going to tell the story of the God of the universe making it possible for a woman without going through the natural biological processes to have a baby, wouldn't you drum it up with a little more drama? If there's a husband involved who's going to put you away, what, don't you think this should have a little more oomph to it, right? This should have a little bit more grit to it. Shouldn't this have a little bit more spice and sizzle? But it does not. It is remarkably unremarkable. You go and read, I wouldn't recommend it by the way, but if you want to go and read all these so-called ancient myths about virgin births, you're going to find a lot of crazy stuff and a lot of inappropriate stuff. But the Bible just states it matter-of-factly. This is what happened. There's no drama. There's no, there's no even real mystery here. It's just simply stating for us, this is what happened. So again, to me, it, it is another piece of evidence of the trustworthiness of the text. They're not making anything up. They're just giving us the facts. The facts as they know them. All right, so Joseph is going to put her away, but notice what it says in verse 20. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you your wife. Again, he's, he's always referred to in regard to Mary. 
For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So again, now now Joseph gets the same message that Mary herself got. But then this is added. And she will bring forth a son. Now understand, this is where we get to the important part. The virgin conception is not the point of the text. Granted, it is important. I would also go as far as to say, if somebody denies the virgin conception, they deny the gospel itself. All right? So, let me make it clear just where I fall on the issue. But it is not the point of the text. The virgin conception is a means to an end. It's not the point. What is the point? What he's about to say now. She will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name, not a family name, not a traditional name, You shall call his name Jesus. This is why the virgin conception was important. Because only through that can he effectively serve the role of fully God, fully man, the mediator between God and man, and the one, as the angel is now going to say, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, I open this thing up by saying... Sometimes Christmas can be disappointing. I wonder if anybody was disappointed by that statement. Now, I know you and I, looking back, we've, we've got the benefit of all the New Testament theology. We know cross, resurrection. We, we understand then the first coming. We know something about the second coming. We know there is a day coming when judgment and justice will reign on the earth. All right, So we, we have all the benefit of that. But in the first century... You shall call his name Jesus. doesn't just say he's going to be a savior. Joshua was a savior, right? That is the name, by the way. It's the same name. Yeshua, Joshua, he who saves. But it doesn't just say he's a savior. He's going to save you from your sin. I don't know about you, but if I'm sitting there in the first century and my regional leader is a puppet who's, been, who's bought his position and the head of the Roman Empire thinks himself to be a god... You know what I'm thinking? I want a Savior who's going to knock some heads. That's what I want. I want a king who's going to be the second coming of David. Maybe throwing a, a bit of Elijah and Moses as a kicker on top. That's what I want. I want Exodus part two. I want to see some fire and brimstone. I want to see some Sodom and Gomorrah action going on here. I want to see what it looks like when God rains down his justice on God's enemies. I, I imagine this first statement of this first Christmas was probably a little disappointing. Yes, Jesus is Savior, and He's going to save His people, not from the Romans, from their sin. From their sin. I find this really instructive, because it cuts through what otherwise might be misconceptions about all of this. That though there will be a coming, when there will be justice and judgment, in fact, the second coming and all the events associated with it, look extraordinarily similar to what was described in the book of Exodus, all right? 
So there will be a second coming. There will be judgment upon the earth. There, there will be a kingdom that is established that rules and reigns in all of its fullness and glory. But even as we noted last week, the reign of Christ is different now than it will be in its fullness. And part of that is because His purpose in His first coming is not to execute judgment, but to extend grace. That man's greatest problem... The folks in the first century, and listen, listen to all you precious folks of the 21st century, the greatest problem is not whatever else you may have on your mind. The greatest problem on the planet, it is the same for every human being in every geographical setting. It is the same for every class, for every gender, for every culture, for every socioeconomic situation. It is the same regardless of who you are, where you are, where you've lived, how you've lived, who you came from, what you are doing now. Every single human being on the planet then and now has the same problem and it is a sin problem. We're rebels. We're rebels and our relationship with God has been broken. And what we need is for that to be restored. And the only way that is restored is through the God-man. Jesus will save His people from their sins. That is a precious promise to us today, church. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but sometimes there's bad news out there. Has anybody noticed that? Anybody see bad things happening? And this is why I always warn you, and I warn myself, all right, I warn us, be mindful of how much news you consume, regardless of the source you consume it from, because none of the earthly news outlets are couching it in a thoroughly biblical worldview. Our number one problem is not a political threat, economic threat, cultural threat, social threat. It's not, it, it, it's not about, uh, you know, whatever's going on in the stock market. It's not about immigration. It is not about terrorism. I'm not saying these things are unimportant. These things certainly are important, but they are simply reflections of what is the greater problem, and that is men are dead in their trespasses and sins. Do not allow the worldviews of other people, of the media, to shape your thinking about this world. You've got a biblical worldview. It is the right worldview, and it tells us what is man's greatest need. It is still a Savior. And let me remind you, church, you know Him. And the obligation placed upon us is that we would be the ones to share Him. And so this is still the message. It's the message of Christmas. A son has been born. And that son is Jesus. Now, I do want to point out one other issue in the text, because I, I, I think it, it fills out then this picture of the saving work of Christ. Notice verse 22, and I, and I mentioned this. Matthew's going to make much of the fact that all that happens in the birth stories, either this one or then what happens with Herod and the wise men, are fulfillment of prophecies. So, 
he'll, he'll interject five times with this statement. Verse 22, So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So, so he's going to constantly bring up Old Testament references to say how they're fulfilled in Jesus. And then notice how it states it. Verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they will call his name Jesus. I know what you're thinking. Does he have a different translation than I do? Is he reading the right thing? Does it say Jesus in any of your translations at that point? It says what? Emmanuel. Does that not strike anybody else as odd? Here, in, does the angel know the Old Testament? Are you thinking, oh my, maybe this angel's never read Isaiah. Maybe that's the problem, all right? And, and so he doesn't get it quite right, so Matthew has to correct the angel. Is that what's going on here? Because the angel's very specific. She will give birth to a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. But what is the Old Testament reference? It says, and he shall be called Emmanuel. Now, this is not a mistake. This is a, this is a theological deepening of what has been said. In other words, the one is the name. Jesus is the name. This is what he shall be called, Savior. And why is it that Jesus is going to be able to save? What makes him different? What makes him special? Because look in the Old Testament. Quite frankly, there was a lot of pretty incredible births, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all right? You look at all of these. There are incredible births associated with that. Read on in the rest of your Old Testament. You'll find it's not uncommon for the Bible to point out unique and incredible births. What is it that makes Jesus different? Yes, it is the virgin birth, conception in particular. It is this initial work so that Jesus is who? He's not just some man. He's not even a better man. He's not even the best man that's ever lived. He is the God-man. When it says He will be called Jesus, Savior, the one who will save us from our sins, it's because He is also at the same time God with us, God among us, God walking step in step with us. This is the promise that we we were so far gone, we were so dead in our trespasses and sin, our problem was such a deep problem that there wasn't anything we could do to save ourselves. Only God could fix the problem. And so for Jesus to save, Jesus has to be man, but he also has to be God. That is the profound truth of the Christmas season. Jesus is 100% man as if he were no God, and 100% God as if he were no man. That's why I like theology better than math, because I don't have to explain that mathematically. I'll leave that up to the rest of you. I'm just telling you, that is how the Bible presents this. He's not like 50-50. He's not like 75% God, 25% man. He's all both. And that's the only way he can be a mediator. That's the only way he can take your hand and the hand of God and bring the two back together again. I don't need a better man. I don't need a good man. I don't even need a just man like Joseph. That is not what I need. I don't need a model. I don't need an example. I need one who can bear God's wrath for my sin in my place so that I won't have to. And that can only be done through Jesus. So we are reminded this is a king. A king who reigns. And a king who saves. And who saves us in the way that we really need to be saved. Saves us from our sin. Because our sin is the only thing that has eternal consequences. 
What a profound promise to us. Now, as we think then about this promise, about the nature of Christ as He who saves, of course, I would make an appeal here to anybody who does not know Christ as Savior. This is what you should be thinking about the Christmas season. Have you trusted Christ? Do you believe He died on the cross and rose from the dead? Have you asked God to save you based on what Christ and Christ alone has done? What a profound way to celebrate Christmas. To yield to Christ, the one who saves you from your sins. If you've never done that, I'll be down front. As we have a time where we will sing again. And if you'd like to know more about that, I'll be here after the service. I will be down front and available to you if you'd like to talk more about that. Of course, I'd also make an appeal to every believer that is here. This is also an important reminder to us that though I don't need to be saved again every day of my life, I need to be reminded that I have a Savior who has saved me from my sin. I don't know if I'm in the same kind of company here, but sin can still rear its ugly head in my life. Maybe y'all have conquered it. But I know I still need a Savior. Maybe there's even something in particular in your life. She you say, yes, I need to be reminded of this one, Jesus, who saves me from my sin. Maybe you'd want to make it a matter of prayer. You can come, you can kneel here. If you'd like me to pray with you, I'd pray with you. How will you respond then to how the Spirit brings God's Word to bear on your life? Let's stand together and I'll pray. And then we will sing together. Father God, we do thank you for gathering us. We do thank you for this Word. We thank you for the hope and promise that we do have a Savior. A Savior who saves us from our sin. We thank you that that means it is God with us. While we couldn't save ourselves, you had to come do it for us. We thank you that in Christ we have a sufficient Savior. No more need be done but what was done by Him. So, Father, may we continue to find ourselves ever trusting in that work of grace and ever thankful for your magnificent love toward us. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.